A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 62. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 21 Thebes, Part 2. We had luncheon that morning, I remember, with the M.B.s in the second hall of the Ramesseum. It was but one occasion among many, for the writer was constantly at work on that side of the river, and we had luncheon in one or another of the western temples every day. Yet that particular meeting stands out in my memory apart from the rest. I see the joyous party gathered together in the shade of the great columns, the Persian rugs spread on the uneven ground, the dragoman in his picturesque dress going to and fro, the brown and tattered Arabs squatting a little way off, silent and hungry-eyed, each with his string of forged scarabs, his imitation gods, or his bits of mummy-case and painted cartonnage for sale, the glowing peeps of landscape framed here and there through vistas of columns, the emblazoned architraves laid along from capital to capital overhead, each block sculptured with enormous cartouches, yet brilliant with vermilion and ultramarine. The patient donkeys munching all together at a little heap of vestures in one corner, the intense depths of cloudless blue above. Of all the Theban ruins the Ramesseum is the most cheerful. Drenched in sunshine, the warm limestone of which it is built seems to have mellowed and turned golden with time. No walls enclose it. No towering pylons overshadow it. It stands high, and the air circulates freely among these simple and beautiful columns. There are not many Egyptian ruins in which one can talk and be merry, but in the Ramesseum one may thoroughly enjoy the passing hour. Whether Ramesses the Great was ever actually buried in this place is a problem which future discoveries may possibly solve. But that the Ramesseum and the tomb of Osimandias were one and the same building is a point upon which I never entertained a moment's doubt. Spending day after day among these ruins, sketching now here, now there, going over the ground bit by bit, and comparing every detail, I came at last to wonder how an identity so obvious could ever have been doubted. Diodorus was of course inaccurate, but then one as little looks for accuracy in Diodorus as in Homer. Compared with some of his topographical descriptions, the account he gives of the Ramesseum is a marvel of exactness. He describes a building approached by two vast courtyards, a hall of pillars opening by way of three entrances from the second courtyard, a succession of chambers, including a sacred library, ceilings of azure bespangled with stars, walls covered with sculptures representing the deeds and triumphs of the king whom he calls Osimandias among which are particularly noticed the assault of a fortress environed by a river, a procession of captives without hands, and a series of all the gods of Egypt, to whom the king was represented in the act of making offerings. Finally, against the entrance to the second courtyard, three statues of the king, one of which, being of cyanite granite and made in a sitting posture, is stated to be not only the greatest in all Egypt, but admirable above all others for its workmanship and the excellence of the stone. Bearing in mind that what is left of the Ramesseum is, as it were, only the backbone of the entire structure, 
one can still walk from end to end of the building, and still recognize every feature of this description. We turn our backs on the wrecked towers of the first propylon. Crossing what was once the first courtyard, we leave to the left the fallen colossus. We enter the second courtyard, and see before us the three entrances to the hall of pillars, and the remains of two other statues. We walk up the central avenue of the great hall, and see above our heads architraves studded with yellow stars upon a ground color so luminously blue that it almost matches the sky. Thence, passing through a chamber lined with sculptures, we come to the library, upon the jaw-jams of which Champollion found the figures of Thoth and Saph, the Lord of Letters and the Lady of the Sacred Books. Finally, among such fragments of sculptured decoration as yet remain, we find the king making offerings to a hieroglyphed list of gods as well as to his deified ancestors. We see the train of captives and the piles of severed hands, and we discover an immense battle-piece, which is in fact a replica of the famous battle-piece at Abu Simbel. This subject, like its Nubian prototype, yet preserves some of its color. The enemy are shown to be fair-skinned and light-haired, and wear the same Syrian robes, and the river, more green than at Abu Simbel, is painted in zigzags in the same manner. The king, alone in his chariot, sends arrow after arrow against the flying foe. They leap into the river and swim for their lives. Some are drowned, some cross in safety, and are helped out by their friends on the opposite bank. A red-haired chief, thus rescued, is suspended head downwards by his soldiers, in order to let the water that he has swallowed run out of his mouth. The river is once more the Orontes, the city is once more Kadesh, the king is once more Ramesses II, and the incidents are again the incidents of the poem of Pentar. The one holy, unmistakable point in the narrative is, however, the colossal statue of Sinite, the largest in Egypt. The siege and the river, the troops of captives, are to be found elsewhere, but nowhere save here, a colossus which answers to that description. This statue was even larger than the twin colossi of the plain. They measure eighteen feet and three inches across the shoulders. This measures twenty-two feet and four inches. They sit about fifty feet high without their pedestals, this one must have lifted his head some ten feet higher still. The measure of his foot, says Diodorus, exceeded seven cubits, the Greek cubit being a little over eighteen inches in length. The foot of the fallen Ramesses measures nearly eleven feet in length by four feet ten inches in breadth. This also is the only very large Theban colossus sculptured in the red cyanite of Aswan. Ruined almost beyond recognition as it is, one never doubts for a moment that this statue was one of the wonders of Egyptian workmanship. It most probably repeated in every detail the colossi of Abu Simbel, but it surpassed them as much in finish of carving as in perfection of material. The stone is even more beautiful in color than that of the famous obelisks of Karnak, and is so close and hard in grain that the scarab cutters of Luxor are said to use splinters of it, as our engravers use diamonds, for the points of their engraving tools. The solid contents of the whole, when entire, are calculated at 887 tons. How this astonishing mass was transported from Aswan, 
how it was raised, how it was overthrown, are problems upon which a great deal of ingenious conjecture has been wasted. One traveller affirms that the wedge-marks of the destroyer are distinctly visible. Another, having carefully examined the fractured edges, declares that the keenest eye can detect neither wedge-marks nor any other evidences of violence. We looked for none of these signs and tokens. We never asked ourselves how or when the ruin had been done. It was enough that the mighty had fallen. Inasmuch as one can clamour upon and measure these stupendous fragments, the fallen colossus is more astonishing, perhaps, as a wreck than it would have been as a whole. Here, snapped across at the waist, and flung helplessly back, lie a huge head and shoulders, to climb which is like climbing a rock. Yonder, amid piles of unintelligible debris, we see a great foot, and nearer the head, part of an enormous trunk, together with the upper halves of two huge thighs, clothed in the usual shenty or striped tunic. The claft, or headdress, is also striped, and these stripes, in both instances, retain the delicate yellow color with which they were originally filled in. To judge from the way in which this color was applied, one would say that the statue was tinted rather than painted. The surface work, wherever it remains, is as smooth and highly finished as the cutting of the finest gem. Even the ground of the superb cartouche, on the upper half of the arm, is elaborately polished. Finally, in the pit which it ploughed out in falling lies the great pedestal, hieroglyphed with the usual pompous titles of Ramesses Mar Amen. Diodorus, knowing nothing of Ramesses or his style, interprets the inscriptions after his own fanciful fashion. I am Osimandus, king of kings. If any would know how great I am, and where I lie, let him excel me in any of my works. The fragments of wall and shattered pylon that yet remain standing at the Ramesseum face northwest and southwest. Hence it follows that some of the most interesting of the surface sculpture, being cut in very low relief, is so placed with regard to the light as to be actually invisible after midday. It was not till the occasion of my last visit, when I came early in the morning to make a certain sketch by a certain light, that I succeeded in distinguishing a single figure of that celebrated tableau, on the south wall of the great hall, in which the Egyptians are seen to be making use of the testudo and scaling ladder to assault a Syrian fortress. The wall sculptures of the second hall are on a bolder scale, and can be seen at any hour. Here Thoth writes the name of Ramesses on the egg-shaped fruit of the Persia tree, and processions of shaven priests carry on their shoulders the sacred boats of various gods. In the centre of each boat is a shrine supported by winged genie or cherubim. The veils over these shrines, the rings through which the bearing poles were passed, and all the appointments and ornaments of the berry, are distinctly shown. One seems here, indeed, to be admitted to a glimpse of those original shrines upon which Moses, learned in the sacred lore of the Egyptians, modelled, but with little alteration, his Ark of the Covenant. Next in importance to Karnak, and second in interest to none of the Theban ruins, is the vast group of buildings known by the collective name of Medinet Habu. To attempt to describe these would be to undertake a task as hopeless as the description of Karnak. Such an attempt lies, at all events, beyond the compass of these pages, so many of which have already been given to similar subjects.
for it is of temples as of mountains. No two are alike, yet all sound so much alike when described that it is scarcely possible to write about them without becoming monotonous. In the present instance, therefore, I will note only a few points of special interest, referring those who wish for fuller particulars to the elaborate account of Medinet Habu in Murray's Handbook of Egypt. In the second name of Medinet Habu, Medinet being the common Arabic for city, and Habu, Abu, or Tabu, being variously spelled, there survives almost beyond doubt the ancient name of that famous city which the Greeks called Thebes. It is a name for which many derivations have been suggested, but upon which the learned are not yet agreed. The ruins of Medinet Habu consist of a smaller temple founded by Queen Hatohepsu of the 18th dynasty, a large and magnificent temple entirely built by Ramesses III of the 20th dynasty, and an extremely curious and interesting building, part palace, part fortress, which is popularly known as the pavilion. The walls of this pavilion, the walls of the great forecourt leading to the smaller temple, and a corner of the original wall of circuit, are crowned in the Egyptian style with shield-shaped battlements. Precisely as the Ketan and Amorite fortresses are battlemented in the sculptured tableaus at Abu Simbel and elsewhere. From whichever side one approaches Medinet Habu, these stone shields strike the eye as a new and interesting feature. They are, moreover, as far as I know, the only specimens of Egyptian battlementing which have survived destruction. Those of the wall of circuit are of the time of Ramesses V, those of the pavilion of the time of Ramesses III, and the latest, which are those of the forecourt, are of the period of Roman occupation. As biographical material, the temple and pavilion at Medinet Habu and the great Harris Papyrus are to the life of Ramesses III precisely what Abu Simbel, the Ramesseum, and the poem of Pentar are to the life of Ramesses II. Great wars, great victories, magnificent praises of the prowess of the king, pompous lists of enemies slain and captured, inventories of booty and of precious gifts offered by the victor to the gods of Egypt, in both instances cover the sculptured walls and fill the written pages. A comparison of the two masses of evidence, due allowance being made for ways of oriental fervor of diction, shows that in Ramesses III we have to do with a king as brilliant, as valorous, and as successful as Ramesses II. It may be that before the time of this pharaoh certain temples were used also as royal residences. It is possible to believe this of temples such as Gurna and Abydus, the plan of which includes besides the usual halls, side-chambers, and sanctuary, a number of other apartments, the uses of which are unknown. It may also be that former kings dwelt in the houses of brick and carved woodwork, such as we see represented in the wall-paintings of various tombs. It is at all events a fact that the only building which we can assume to have been a royal palace, and of which any vestiges have come down to the present day, was erected by Ramesses III, namely this little pavilion at Medinet Habu. It may not have been a palace. It may have been only a fortified gate, but though the chambers are small, they are well lighted, and the plan of the whole is certainly domestic in character. It consists, as we now see it, of two lodges connected by zigzag wings with the central tower. The lodges and tower stand to each other as the three points of an acute angle. 
These structures enclose an oblong courtyard leading by a passage under the central tower to the sacred enclosure beyond. So far as its present condition enables us to judge, this building contained only eight rooms, namely three one above the other, in each of the lodges, and two over the gateway. These towers communicate by means of devious passages in the connecting wings. Two of the windows in the wings are adorned with balconies supported on brackets, each bracket representing the head and shoulders of a crouching captive, in the attitude of a gargoyle. The heads and dresses of these captives, conceived as they are in a vein of Gothic barbarism, are still bright with color. The central, or gateway, tower is substantially perfect. The rider with help got as high as the first chamber, the ceiling of which is painted in a rich and intricate pattern, as an imitation of mosaic. The top room is difficult of access, but can be reached by a good climber. Our friend F. W. S., who made his way up there a year or two before, found upon the walls some interesting sculptures of cups and vases, apparently part of an illustrated inventory of domestic utensils. Three of these, unlike any engraved in the works of Wilkinson or Rossellini, are here reproduced from his sketch made upon the spot. The lid of the smaller vase, it will be observed, opens by means of a lever spooned out for the thumb to rest in, just like the lid of a German beer-mug of the present day. End of section 62